good, but hopefully things will turn up for tomorrow. We're looking at weather mainly cloudy with one or two rain patches. Top temperature of 26 degrees. I'm Andrew Work signing off for Money Talk. It's 831. Samantha Butler has the half hour news. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, has announced a new national lockdown. Speaking on national television, he said none of the coronavirus measures taken so far had worked in the face of a second wave whose speed had caught all of Europe by surprise. After exchanges with all our European partners and weighing the good points and bad points, I have decided that, starting from Friday, we need to again put in place the lockdown that stopped the virus. Each hour counts. Chancellor Angela Merkel and German regional leaders have agreed to shut the leisure sector from Monday for the whole of November to halt the exponential spread of the virus. Here's the BBC's Jenny Hill. Germany had to act now, said Angela Merkel, to prevent a health emergency. As of Monday, bars, restaurants, arts and leisure facilities will close for a month. Although in contrast to earlier restrictions this year, schools, nurseries and shops will stay open. Professional sporting events, including the Bundesliga, will go ahead. But once again, matches will be played to empty stadia. And private gatherings will be limited to a maximum of 10 people from two households. This country has fewer cases than many other parts of Europe, but the speed with which which the virus is spreading has alarmed Berlin. The U.S. Justice Department says five Chinese agents have been arrested for targeting Beijing dissidents in the United States. They're among eight people charged with conspiring to work on behalf of China in an international campaign aimed at threatening the dissidents and forcing them to return to their home country. Three of those charged are believed to be in China. Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, announced the arrests. Today's charges reflect yet another example of China's ongoing and widespread lawless behavior and our refusal to tolerate it. Simply put, it's outrageous that China thinks it can come to our shores, conduct illegal operations and bend people here in the United States to their will. New research suggests China's policy of widespread tree planting is having a much larger impact on its carbon emissions than previously believed. Here's the BBC's Matt McGrath. This new study has given scientists a much clearer view of the effect of planting more than 66 billion trees across China over the past 40 years. It shows they soaked up almost half the country's carbon from human activities between 2010 and 2016. Big uncertainties still remain, and there are worries many of these trees could die or be cut down and release their stored CO2. But the new data also shows future plans to cover one-third of China in trees could help the country achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Anna, good morning to you. Good morning, everybody. Today we're talking about alt-protein and the future of food. In the 21st century, a range of issues, environmental, ethical and health, among others, are leading many people to explore alternative sources for their food. From impossible beef and omni-pork, an all-purpose plant-based pork analogue, to insects, 
Why has a whole hotel chain gone vegetarian for a year? Why is McDonald's here serving vegan luncheon meat? Are, bigger, are burgers grown in a lab a viable alternative? Or should we just be sticking to simple vegetables? Uh, should products that don't contain meat be labelled sausages or burgers? And over the past 50 years, meat production has more than quadrupled. There's some evidence that global demand for meat is growing. Is this really, then, how the world will eat in 100 years from now? Or a plant-based diet just another food fad that's destined to fade away. Let us know your thoughts. You can email us backchat at rthk.hk. You can leave a message on our Facebook page. Join the discussion there, backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Or give us a call and we'll put you on air. 233-88266 is the number. 233-88266. We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, we're joined for this uh, first part of the uh, programme. Others will be joining us uh, after the news at nine by uh, Christina Michelini, who's CEO, uh, COO of Living Farms. We'll learn exactly what that is uh, in a moment and uh, Sonali Figueres who's a founder and editor-in-chief of uh, Green Queen which is a, uh, a media platform uh, on uh, uh, an award-winning sustainability and impact media platform advocating for urgent social and environmental change that's, that's based in Hong Kong. Maybe if we could start with you, Ms. Figueres. Good morning to you. Th thanks for, for joining us. Um, Good morning. Um, great, great to be here on, on to talk about my favourite topic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, let's just, just think about kind of the motivation, maybe, because... Um, we, you know, we've noticed this trend, and we'll talk about a little bit more about how substantial it is and the various threads and so on. But what do you think is the motivation? Why, why are people becoming more and more interested in alternative forms of, of protein and, and uh, uh, non-meat um, diets? Absolutely. No, that's a great question. I think it's a really important one to set the frame. So about two years ago, um, there was a, 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 an article that came out in The Guardian uh, that published a consensus between uh, scientists, researchers, and academics from across the globe, uh, from different universities, different disciplines, but all looking at nutrition, sustainability, carbon emission um, of our agricultural system. And their number one recommendation to individuals and consumers um, and even, even businesses was in order to, the best thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint is to reduce your consumption of meat and dairy. And, and the reason for that is that the livestock industry uh, for dairy cows and meat cows has the largest footprint in terms of emissions in the world. Can you just explain so, why that is? Because people might not understand what, what happens with cows and cattle, what their back ends produce. Sure. So, um, first of all, Cows, and, uh, cows and, and, and just cattle in general require a ton of land. And so in many parts of the world, this means uh, raising down virgin forests, tropical forests, rainforests, in order to have uh, fields for, for livestock. Uh, the other thing is that livestock is um, a lot of the livestock that we consume, so conventional livestock, is actually quite sick because the way that they're being raised in, in kind of industrial um uh, it pens where they have almost no space um, and it means that they get sick and they require antibiotics and then they require we also pump them with growth hormones so that we can raise more meat. We also tend to feed them corn and soy which is not their natural diet. Their natural diet is actually you know grazing uh, grass. grass right? Which is why you've seen this huge uptick in, in grass-fed beef um, as an alternative and, and as sort of a better choice. 
But um, the other problem is that cattle farming is hugely water intensive. Um, also, there are massive public health issues. There's also um, that, the, the methane. Don't forget the methane, which is well, mega. Sorry. Yeah, of course. That I was going to come to that last. Of course, the biggest thing is the, the actual emissions produced by cows and methane being one of the most kind of dangerous of all the greenhouse gases. But it's not really just that. It's also the carbon emissions from the, the fact that we're losing forests mm. that we need for, to, to provide oxygen for the planet and, of course, the water. And then the other thing, which is a public health issue, is the superbug issue. So we feed them tons of antibiotics, and we then eat the cows, we drink the milk, we eat the cow meat, and then we become resistant to antibiotics. And so there's actually a huge fear that in, in the next 10 years, we're going to run out of antibiotics that work on major diseases. And I don't need to tell anyone that we're in, we're in the midst of a huge pandemic, not one that can be solved with antibiotics. But the point is, you know, we are, we, we do have major health crises and the livestock industry just, just is such a mess. So it's just um, unsustainable on all fronts, isn't it? Ethically, uh, from consumption, from greenhouse gases, on there is really no redeeming feature about this. Right, other than the fact that there are people who will argue that we humans are meant to eat meat and that meat helps develop our brain. I mean, there are all kinds of theories. However, um, the prevailing understanding, and this is, again, a consensus globally amongst all different kinds of scientists, academics, and researchers, is that we need to reduce. And so to go back to the, the first question, why is there this rise in interest and, and appetite for alternative protein? And that's because, um, so two years ago when this public kind of statement was made and it was covered all across media, um, especially the mainstream media, uh, to be honest, media like us have been covering it for a while, but there was this confluence of, well, we've always had vegans and vegetarians who are uh, abstaining from meat consumption for ethical reasons and for you know, moral reasons, but suddenly you have all these, um, there, there's also this rise of conscious consumers because of social media and the more information that we have about how products are made and how our food is grown that suddenly want to make decisions that are, you know, planet forward, as we say. And so suddenly they, they have this massive um, kind of motivation to reduce meat and dairy. And so, of course, what happens then is you need alternatives. And so this is where now um, all these innovative founders of what we call food tech companies who, who didn't just say, okay, I want to serve people veggie bur burgers made from plants, but said, hey, I want to serve people meat that is actually exactly meat. It's just not coming from cows. And so this is where there was kind of a shift. Um, and of course, you know, the fact that it has a technological kind of feel to, to it and that the sector is very heavy on, you know, innovation, uh, takes it, puts it in a different category than just your average veggie burger, which we've had since around the 60s. I believe the first veggie burger actually was invented in the UK. Mm. So, so when you say actual meat, you're talking about, you're talking about lab-grown meat, are you here? Or? No, sorry. I'm talking about people like Pat Brown from Impossible Foods okay. and Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat and, you know, David Young from, from Omni Foods and Green Monday who are saying things like, you can enjoy all the qualities of meat, the taste, the texture, the cooking um, characteristics, the feel, the, even the kind of iron-rich, bloody kind of, you know, uh, mouthful mm. that you get from, you know, you know, beef that is bleeding. You can enjoy all those things. We're going to give you a product that, that replicates all those things. It's just it's made from plants. Lab-grown meat is a, is a different 
part of all protein. So if you divide all protein into, let's say, um, five categories, you've got you've got the vegetable replacement, so something like a jackfruit or, for example, a lion's mane mushroom, mm-hmm. where you're using a whole vegetable that has very similar textures as certain kinds of meat, and so you're cooking it in a way that it feels like chicken or it feels like pulled pork or whatever, but it's mostly a whole foods product. Then you've got plant-based meats. So again, the ones I just talked about, like an Omni pork or an Impossible Burger or a Beyond Meat, Beyond Sausage. And then you've got um, lab-grown, which in the industry we tell to call cell-based um, or cultivated. And that is when you're using an animal cell, so you don't need to kill an animal. You're just using a cell to grow um, certain parts of animals in uh, what's called a bioreactor or a, cultiva- uh, a cultivator. And that is not commercially available today. So we have some very exciting companies, especially here in Asia, that are working on it. And that is happening for dairy, for seafood, for beef, for chicken, not just for, 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 for meat. So it is very broad. But obviously there are regulatory concerns. We, you know, the governments need to catch up. Um, here in Asia, I would say Singapore and mainland China is where you see a lot of development here because let's face it, um, cell-based meat is hugely important for food security. Um, it has a lot to recommend it. So obviously, one, it's animal-free. Two, it's exactly the same thing. It's not a replacement made by plants. It's, it's literally the, the, the meat of the animal or the, or the milk of the animal. Uh, it just doesn't, we don't need to kill any animal to, to do it. We call it slaughter-free. And the other thing that a lot of people maybe don't talk about yet because it's only just, uh, it's a very, you know, a nascent sector is the fact that you can have react bioreactors or cultivators in every city. So the, the, the ability to reduce your, your food mile and the distance from, from production to plate is incredible. Much like the growth of urban farming um, and the idea that we want to have vertical farms in cities so that we don't have to be importing, you know, lettuce from, from Italy and Hong Kong or whatever. This is, this is very much in, in line with kind of the cell-based, uh, the potential for cell-based. Um, but I just, I do want to be clear. It, it, it would not be suitable for anyone who doesn't want to eat animals on ethical grounds because it, it obviously isn't, it is from an animal. And it, some people may prefer not, not to consume animal products. So I just want to be clear. Cell-based and lab-grown meat is animal, of animal origin. Plant-based is not. Whole foods plant-based is not. And then there obviously is the other category um, which is insect farming. Um, which okay, which is, which is a cue for our, for our next guest, uh, Christina Michelini, CEO of, of Living Farms. Good morning to you, and thanks, thanks for, for joining us. Tell us about Living Farms. What is it? Good morning. morning. Uh, thank you so much, Yanana, for having me. And uh, good morning, Sonali. Happy to be here with you today to talk about this very important topic, of course. Um, let me maybe start by introducing a little bit Living Farms and what we do. We are, of course, a um, sustainability company, so we're in the field of sustainability, and we have two streams of business. We don't only do um, the part where we farm insects and basically grow alternative insect proteins, but we also have a stream of the business where we do education, and that's what we do primarily here in Hong Kong. Mm. So. Living Farms started focusing on insects because insects have a specific place in the ecosystem. And what is going to be really interesting to talk about today is that 
you can't really talk about insects by focusing only on proteins. Um, it's not um, a one-way uh, one street, basically. There are so many other things that are involved in the process of growing insects, and one of them is uh, the issue of, of food waste. So we know that our food system have a huge problem with the food waste from harvest to the table. There are basically byproducts and side streams that are produced in the process. And the amazing thing about insects is that they can actually uh, digest, eat these food waste while growing and becoming alternative proteins and at the same time also produce um, nitrogen-packed and very good natural fertilizer. Now, which so, insects are we talking about? Are we talking about mealworms or what are we actually talking about? Yeah. So we work with uh, mealworms mostly at the moment, but we are also looking into new type of insects like black soldier flies and buffalo worm that might be even more efficient. Can you explain a bit way. what they are? Because I've never heard of them. Right. I don't, I don't think it's super important to go into the detail of what they are. That's different types of insects that have larvae, and it's the larvae that mostly eats the food waste. So it's okay. the larvae stage of the metamorphosis uh, process of the insects that would eat the food waste. And so the reason why we're potentially in the future moving into different types of insects compared to mealworms is that they might be more efficient in how they tackle this issue and how they eat um, eat food waste and transform it into fertilizer, which is their poop, basically, is their, um, their droppings, right? And um, they also use this food waste to grow themselves and become edible proteins, potentially. Now, until now, we've worked with mealworms, and mealworms have the advantage of being very good to be indoors and in people's homes. So... As I said, one of our objectives was that of promoting education around insects, around insects of alternative proteins, but also um, the amazing thing about insects is that by learning about their life cycle, you can learn a lot about sustainability at large. So you can... Uh, okay, so I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about using the, the droppings of maggots that have been fed on discarded food. I mean, you're kind of ticking every human uh response there on <laughs> when it when it comes to uh disgust um a, a lot of people yeah. will be revolted even by the idea of that um uh and putting that into the food chain uh, whether you grow plants or whether you actually eat those mealworms themselves that's going to be a lot problematic for a lot of a lot of people how do you address that how do you how do you uh, you must realize that um people are turned off, to say the least, by the thought by the thought of, of that sort of process. Okay, to clarify, the mealworm droppings are used for fertilizer mm -hmm. only, yeah. right? It's only the mealworm itself, so the larvae that can be used for animal and animal feed and human food. Uh, we are very well aware that there is a big factor when it comes to insects, right? We are all pretty squeamish around insects and. We know that, but we also know that there have been other types of foods in the past that we thought were either disgusting or not appropriate for human consumption, and these things went through some sort of like rebranding process until we figured out that it's actually acceptable to eat them. Um, lobster is an example. 
Well, um, raw fish, I remember as a kid being told that you could eat raw fish and, and being repulsed. And now I love sushi and sashimi. So I think a lot of it is just cultural, isn't it, and what we get used to. Absolutely, absolutely. That's exactly the point, Hannah. And there's actually a very good TED Talk that our CEO, Katarina, did a few, time, um, a few years ago where she explains exactly that cultural uh, process of basically deciding what type of food is disgusting or not. And we also see that across different cultures, what is considered disgusting or not is different, right? So there are actually countries where insects are consumed. Um, the closest to us is probably Thailand, right? Well, the, yeah. Um, I can't remember. Yeah. I think Great Supermarket has a whole section of crunchy, interesting things in packets that definitely came from insect origins. Exactly, exactly. So it is definitely a matter of like exposure, habit, um, you know, just even proximity, I'd say. One thing that you notice quite a lot in Hong Kong is that because where we live is so heavily urbanized, we might be sort of sheltered um, from nature and from um, the world of insects, right? So that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring insects closer to people, but in a way that is approachable, that is not scary, right, that, don't, that does not disgust. And so, so, so just, we, just pause that mm-hmm. one. If we think of snails, most people do not grow up thinking, yummy, yummy, I can't wait to eat a snail. But when you cook them in nice garlicky butter, they are quite yummy. Mm-hmm. Is it, are we going to be doing the garlic butter of uh, cockroaches or how are we going to cook them? I mean, that is possible. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is, of course, to normalize edible insects. And to do that, um, and that is part of the rebranding process, if you will, you have to make them visually appealing, of course, but also tasty, right? And uh, I think, actually, the culinary art in there has a lot to bring to the table, literally. Um, we do work with some pretty creative um, chefs uh, as well as nutritionists that do an amazing job at um, basically reproposing insects under a completely new light do, on do you, the table. Do you, do you basically hide them? Do you kind of basically kind of mash them up and stick them in a burger kind of thing? That that, that approach? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. A lot of it you'll um, you'll find uh, that a lot of it is also just like the plate presentation and and how the plates how they are plated literally. Uh, so, you know, like the garnish and how artsy or not the plate is. In other um, cases, the people are more keen on consuming insects if we turn them into powder or if we turn them into a flower, of course. Um, but it is possible to consume uh, insects in their entirety. So mealworms, for example, if you go and check our blog, you'll probably find some pictures where... Um, mealworms are just like entire or, and mixed with other type of other type of dishes. So, for example, a fried rice or a salad, and they add that additional crunch. They actually have a nutty taste. So, when they are brought to the table together with food um, that we consume on a daily basis, and they are offered, say, in small bites and in small portions, then I think become a little bit more acceptable. Do you eat them? Do you, do you eat them? 
I ate them. I tried them. Now, of course, they're not easily accessible here in Hong Kong because we don't do the insect farming part here in Hong Kong. Uh, we do that in our office in Vienna at an industrial scale. So we don't have easy access to um, to insects here. Okay. Some uh, okay. Some uh, emails. Our address: backchat at rthk dot hk. Thank you very much indeed for your interesting uh, messages. Tom says, as a burger eater, I'm tempted to make fun of this ridiculous concept of eating plants sent through a chemical factory to taste more like meat while being more expensive. But on the other hand, I have to admit it's ethically and economically a good idea to have a plant-based diet. To change our behaviour on something a lot of us resistant on is a challenge. One thing that works is taxes. Government could tax meat and then our habits would slowly change. Or going with the example of tobacco, put pictures of dead chickens on the front of the package. That might work faster. That comes uh, from Tom. Uh, you can see plenty of pictures of dead chickens around advertising chickens. <laughs> Tom, I'm not sure about that. Uh, June says, I saw your topic today. Permit me to add a couple of observations. One, I've never liked meat, so plant-based diet is easy for me. My husband, who is a meat eater, started to join me a few years ago to have an occasional meat-free meal, and he enjoys it. The point is you don't need to switch cold turkey 100% meat-free. Even if we just do one meal a week, uh, once a week, that's one out of 20, assuming you eat three meals a day, it will already have some impact on the earth. So why not? We live in it. We have to be responsible for it, right? Don't you want to pass on a nice, healthy, green environment to your children? I do. And secondly, there are so there are many yummy recipes that don't uh, that do not involve uh, impossible, beyond meat, or omni anything. Our favourite family recipe is sweet and sour eggplant, and you don't have to have the stodgy sensation after. So many non-alternative meat recipes on internet, social media. You can even buy plant-based food at Marks and Spencers and Park and Shop. Uh, thank you very much. Indeed. That com those comments uh, from. June and uh, Richard II says, Good morning, your guest lists several disadvantages of meat for environmental purposes. But there is the additional disadvantage from, in particular red meats, of there being significant risk factors for certain non-communicable health problems such as uh, ischemic heart disease and cancers especially of the gastrointestinal tract. Moreover the food miles involved in transporting meat for example from Amazonia where most of Hong Kong's beef comes from to Hong Kong emits significant air pollution along with the burning, burning of virgin forests all of which are major contributors to the millions who die from air pollution related diseases. Finally, the infectious diseases risk from billions of animals, both domesticated and wild, used for human consumption, has brought most of us our influenza epidemic, SARS, COVID, and a host of other infectious diseases, such as measles, which happened a long time ago. And if the argument that people need meat is raised, I would refer you to Vegetarian India to disprove this claim. That's uh, all from Richard II. Thank you very much indeed from that. Suddenly, Figueres, what, what about this? this point about the this being very tom was touching on there this being very processed this being very kind of artificial why can't we just do what india does uh, if you want to be a vegetarian or vegan and just eat uh, plants yeah 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 no i get this question every single day at every panel i talk at so a couple of things before i i dive into that question i'd like to um address some of the great uh letters and emails you got um, just to be clear to the, I think, the third letter writer, I didn't catch his name, uh, this is a very complicated topic, and we have actually got a 120-page alter uh, Asia Alternative Protein Report that dives into everything he mentioned. 
Um, and one of the things we haven't yet addressed is the connection between the livestock industry and pandemics like COVID-19. And I, I think that would take an entire program. So there is no doubt that it's not just an environmental issue. It's not just an ethical issue. Uh, we, we also haven't talked about the fact that the WHO uh, lists certain types of processed meats as cancer, um, uh, uh, as having kind of cancer-causing potential, and there, as, as it being uh, there being a relationship. So. I mean, there are so many reasons. Well, that is a particular problem in Hong Kong, isn't it? Um, throat and mouth cancer are uh, attributed with the high consumption of processed foods and sausages here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, absolutely. And, and to be honest, I think that's rising across the world. And, of course, as societies develop um, and, and as we become more urban and, and 70% of the world's population is going to live urban in, in urban zones by, I think, 20, 2030, and so we're going to eat more processed food. But, so it's perfect to segue into the question of, you know, should I be eating a processed burger um, that's made from plants? Okay, so a couple of things on that. One, the founders of these big food tech companies that are trying to really revolutionize our food system are truly not trying to address the niche population that eats a, you know, certified organic, locally grown, um, artisanal producer only, whole foods, plant-based diet. If, if you can manage that diet seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year, I applaud you and may you be, uh, you know, uh, an example for us all. The reality of the situation is that McDonald's is serving two billion burgers a year um, to hundreds of millions of people. So what these companies are trying to do is offer uh, low carbon emission, uh, low, low to no, co uh, no cholesterol, healthier alternative to processed beef. And that comes to my, the last point in what I want to address, which is that the idea that the meat that you're eating, the, the, the cow meat or the cow milk or whatever, or the pork meat for that matter, is not processed and is not filled with horrible stuff that should come on the ingredient label is, is nonsense. Um, we are just being sold a lie by the livestock industry. Okay. The lobbies are full of money. They are well-funded. They are strong. They are, they are successful. Um, now they are fighting back. And one of the arguments that they are going with and, and populating, you know, really pushing out content about this all around okay. social media. I'm gonna have to you know? gonna have to just press pause for for a, for a moment, Ms. Figueres. So we're gonna return to the topic. We've got a break now for the news at nine, and we will be joined by uh, other people, including Mr. Omni Pork uh, himself. Uh, the weather mainly clouded with a couple of rain patches. Twenty four degrees now. Humidity is at seventy two percent. And leisure facilities will close for a month, although in contrast to earlier restrictions this year, schools, nurseries and shops will stay open. Professional sporting events, including the Bundesliga, will go ahead, but once again matches will be played to empty stadia, and private gatherings will be limited to a maximum of 10 people from two households. This country has fewer cases than many other parts of Europe, but the speed with which the virus is spreading has alarmed Berlin. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Backchat this uh, Thursday morning with Anna Fenton and me, Hugh Chiverson. We're talking about uh, alternative uh, food, alternative protein in particular, and the future of food. We've been talking in the first part of the program this morning to uh, Christina Michelini, CEO of uh, Living Farms, who uh, farm insects, and Sonali Figueres, founder and editor-in-chief of uh, Green Queen, a uh, platform, a sustainability platform with an interest in particular in uh, alternative uh, protein. We're also 
joined now by David Young, who's CEO and founder of the Green Monday Group, and Professor uh, Daisy Tam, Assistant Professor in the Department of Humanities at the Baptist University, with a particular interest in food and, and uh, food security. Uh, as ever, we want to hear from you. You can call us, join the conversation, 233-88266. You can comment on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, or you can drop us a line. Our email is backchat at rthk.hk, and we'll do our best to read out your messages. Uh, on Facebook, Victoria Ann says, Environmental and ethical diets are not only meat-free. Uh, millions of people have switched to soy and nut milk in recent years, and they found out that people who exhibit allergies to milk do very well on plant-based milk. After all, milk is produced for baby cows, not baby humans. And the price a cow pays for being forced to be pregnant on stop most of her confined lifetime to produce milk is another reason why a lot of people stopped drinking milk. There is nothing wrong with having a bit of compassion. That comes um, from Victoria. Thank you very much indeed um, for that. Um, uh, just before we go on, um, so, Miss Figueres, you you were talking uh, in the first part of the program just before we we cut, had to cut you off at uh, at nine o'clock about the about the meat industry. I, I've got to say that this you know this kind of mixed signs, but uh, the most recent example, for example, in um, in the US, uh, says that uh, red meat production uh, was at record levels uh, last month uh, with all time monthly highs for beef and pork i mean that suggests that in fact the meat industry is uh, is steaming ahead miss figueres sorry was that addressed to me yeah to David? yeah 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 no to you i think maybe just to um you know uh yeah actually david and i talk about this a lot um yeah. good morning david and good morning daisy hey good um, morning yeah, absolutely i just uh, i just shared a link the other day with with some people it's unbelievable the, the meat industry, despite all the reports saying that, you know, meat farms had been extremely affected by COVID-19 and had to shut down, uh, production is on, is on record levels. And the problem is, is that with urbanization and the rising of middle classes across the world, people want to eat more meat because they, they associate meat with, you know, more nutrition, more protein, more higher status, to be honest. And, and, we, and this is what another thing that the alternative protein industry is really working hard to fight. Um, but let's not, let, I just want to underline the point I made before the break, which is that the meat industry across the world is extremely well funded with lobbyists that are extremely successful at convincing us that, you know, the, the happy cow on the, on the green pasture is, you know, the answer to our nutritional needs. Okay, let's go to David Young now, uh, CEO and founder of, of the Green Monday Group. Good morning to you. Thanks very much for, for joining us today. Uh, we, I'm going to call you Mr. Omnipork for uh, ease, <laughs> ease of reference. Are you are you in a battle with the with the with the meat industry? Well, I think we're at the super early stage right now, um, particularly in Asia. I mean, the awareness really only starts uh, growing. I would say in the last twelve to maximum 18 months. I mean, we have been doing a lot of groundwork for eight years now, but really in terms of the general public, in terms of the food and beverage industry, um, the change is really just beginning. So, I mean, we are nowhere near the phase of, you know, battling. But that being said, though, I mean, I think uh, people are becoming much more conscious uh, about, you know, what is really happening behind the food value chain. I mean, they, you know, with documentaries, with a lot of news, Particularly this year, of course, uh, you know, uh, you know the unfortunate situation with COVID, uh, and then of course African swine fever, which is still ongoing. So, you know, the need for alternative, you know, for for a long time.
time when we were explaining Omniport or any other alternative meat out there. I mean, people look at us as like, why? You know, um, you know, what is the market for this? I mean, and vegan population relatively is so tiny. But now they realize that this is not a vegan versus meat uh, eater uh, situation. This is simply about a protein supply chain and a global sustainability issue. With our population growing to 9 and 10 billion very soon uh, and, you know, rapidly deteriorating ecosystem, we simply cannot sustain that many animals on the planet. But, and, but okay, you know, but change is, must happen. Okay, to take it down to a micro level, I mean, if you, you know, you're in a restaurant or you're in McDonald's, because now McDonald's is serving, yep. they've got these, uh, they've got Omnipork on, on the menu. So you yep. have an alternative, you know, you go into the restaurant and they say, do you want this? Do you want the Omnipork luncheon meat or do you want pork luncheon meat? Right. What, what factors affect people there? Have you, have you asked people? Have you gone into that? And yes, you know, definitely. Is it, because is it, I'm wondering if it's half of it is kind of novelty and you, you might try it once, but I don't know if you'd stick with it. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, in terms of the motivation, of course, now, again, you know, the awareness is growing. So sustainability, uh, particularly among, you know, millennials, Gen Z, you know, uh, they, sustainability is high on their list in terms of what to consume, that's number one. The other one is health and fitness and wellness. Um, now, if you compare regular luncheon meat, which, you know, has been classified as, you know, carcinogenic and, you know, obviously high cholesterol, high sodium and all that, people realize if there's a better choice, you know, uh, but it doesn't mean a sacrifice to their taste. So health, uh, sustainability, and while keeping that taste satisfaction, I mean, these are the driving factors. And although, of course, novelty is certainly a factor, just like with anything in the world, but we are definitely seeing growing, fast-growing uh, population of people who start to look at this flexitarian habit or diet uh, becoming just a routine for them. It's kind of like exercising. You know, you don't have to run 42K. Not, not everyone needs to be a full vegan or can be a full vegan, but one day or multiple days a week certainly is doable and it's better for their own health. Can I just go back to something you mentioned, which has puzzled me? COVID in meat processing plants. Why do we keep hearing about this? Is this just because the workers are crammed in together? Or is there something special about meat pro people who we work in meat processing plants and COVID? Well, I mean, obviously the outbreak, because they are in such dense uh, working environments, so it, it becomes ultra easy to have massive outbreaks, which has happened across the world. You know, U.S., Belgium, Germany, U.K. Mm. I mean, so that's obviously a major part that has been exposed. The other one is, you know, the practices inside. It's not just the dense environment, but also how the workers uh, are treated or how, in many cases, how poorly they have been treated. I mean, some uh, meat packers actually require the workers to buy their own masks or Maybe the company would buy the mask for them, but they need to, the workers actually need to pay for that. So there are a lot of these kind of things that have been exposed mm. um, that, you know, really behind the scenes people were never aware of before. So it's a much bigger issue than just animal welfare and all that sort of thing, isn't it? Indeed. I mean, I think anyone can go search, you know, many, many of the news that came out over the last, you know, six, seven months. And, and they, the, the dark side, not just, uh, not just the animal welfare angle, but simply as a company, mm. you know, as, as organizations, you know, some of these companies, the way they conduct business and the way they treat their workers, I mean, there, there's 
clearly a lot of room for improvement. Can I ask you a couple of very basic questions about about Omnipork that um, have been on my mind for a while? First of all, is why why do you call it Omnipork? Is that <laughs> is, is is it is it? I don't know. It sounds slightly ominous to me. It sounds a little bit kind of weird <laughs> as a name, Omnipork. And and uh, what's in it? What's it made of? Okay. Well, I mean, we name it Omni for actually for a very simple reason. Omni means all, right? So all people, all beings on the planet, and all beings, not just human beings, but it's good for all beings on the planet. So this is a product for all. So whether you are vegan, whether you're a meat eater, you can enjoy it. Uh, and at the same time, this is for the benefit of all beings. So that's why we call it, well, as the company of, of this, you know, this arm of our group is called Omni Foods. And then this particular product resembles pork, which, um, you know, pork is the most consumed animal protein in Asia, and that's the reason why we focus uh, on this kind of animal protein to, uh, to create alternative for. As far as ingredients, I mean, it's made from non-GMO soy, depending on which product, the luncheon is with uh, non-GMO soy, wheat, coconut oil, and beetroots. Those are among the, uh, the main ingredients that go into it. Are they all kind of sustainable ingredients? Coconut uh, okay, oil? The, is that... the soy definitely is non-GMO. Um, so we don't use any unsustainably sourced ingredients, um, and and we try to keep the distance shorter whenever possible. So even though the R and D is in Canada, but our production is in Asia, is in Thailand. So relatively speaking, in terms of the transportation logistics, we want to keep it as efficient as possible. And you had, you know, quite a coup. We mentioned by getting McDonald's to to, to sell it and a mass market like that. How did that? What was that process like? Was it easy to to persuade them? Were they were they kind of receptive? And what happens in other places? Um, well, it, it 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 is. This is many years in the making. Hmm. Um, I certainly won't call it easy. <laughs> um, well, this is about. Uh, finding what developing and, and identifying the products that are relevant to the local market and local audience. Now, there are many products out there that, you know, other companies have developed and we certainly can also develop other products. But in the case of many places in Asia, including certainly Hong Kong, people just have this crazy obsession for luncheon meat. It's, it's hard to explain. If you go into any cha chan tang, you know, uh, luncheon meat, you know, instant noodles or sandwich is almost a staple that some people actually would eat it four or five times a week. So, um, you know, this, first of all, identifying the product. And then second, of course, explaining to them, you know, the growth momentum of the space, which, you know, we have been, you know, observing. Actually, we've been creating this trend since eight years ago. And, you know, with, you know, hot figures, with the right products, um, and that's something that I guess you know also fit into the overall strategy in terms of expansion. I mean, those are among the reasons. But it's not just with one particular chain. I mean, we we are doing this with you know uh, different kind of uh, fast food chains or hotels or cafes across Asia in mainland China, Taiwan, uh, Thailand, Singapore, etc. Mm. Okay, some uh, emails. Uh, Jay says meat is good for you once or twice a week. But as a lady, they'll explain many of these American capital are filled with GMO stuff, which is creating obesity. Now we know this. Why are we getting all this American chickens and all this American meat in Hong Kong? Well, I would start off with banning that in Hong Kong. The price of regular meat might come down. Then we don't want to eat American-sized meals, American-sized burgers. 
uh, we want something in correct size proportion for a healthy person. Stop educating us to get fat on junk food. And uh, Bo says, a great panel and an important topic. I've been fully plant-based for three years in an effort not to die prematurely from cardiovascular disease, unlike my father. Habits clearly play a role, but we need to get away from the notion that you cannot get enough protein from plants. Is it not easier to convince people to eat more oats, lentils and beans than insects? That uh, question from uh, Bo. Thank you very much indeed. Bankchatters.hk.hk is, is our email address. Uh, we're joined now, as I say, by uh, Daisy Tam, Assistant Professor in the Department of Humanities at the Baptist University, uh, with a, a particular interest in, in food and, and food security. Good morning. Thanks for, for joining us once again. Good morning. Um, so, uh, first of all, let's look at the kind of the, the current situation, this global uh, emergency, uh, the, the, the pandemic. Do you think that's changing attitudes towards food? Do you think that's changing attitudes? And, uh, and then let's, you know, look at the you know, developed world and the developing world. I think talking about the future of food is, it's a great topic because it's, it's the stuff of science fiction. If you look at... Um, historically all the science fiction films from the 60s 70s onwards there's always been an obsession about what happens if we lack food and i think the p pandemic has really um jolted us a little to see how heavily dependent we are on imports in the case of hong kong so you know food shortages when when logistic companies couldn't couldn't move stuff around and obviously in the sort of longer term and and again like um Sonalia David have mentioned that people are becoming more aware of their own diets and their own well-being and trying to be careful of what they eat. And in the wider context of food security, especially in urban areas, I think this is a really important point. Cities occupy perhaps 1% of the global land mass, yet consume 75% of the world's natural resources. Urbanites are extremely um, resource uh, intensive. We eat more than everyone else. We, we consume more than everyone else. Our diets are always up the food chain. Um, much more of the noble cuts of meats and, and fish and all of this. So, yeah, we are, I mean, people who live in cities are much more um, unsustainable, have a much more unsustainable lifestyle. And this is not necessarily just because we are selfish. Um, what Sonali mentioned about uh, class and all this plays do play a part, but also about access and alternatives, right? So thinking about where we can get our food from and what kind of choices we have when we go to the shops. You know, sometimes I don't want to have the prime cut of a meat of meat. You know, I want the the slower cut, the cheaper cuts. You know, the 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 bits and pieces that other people don't want to use a steak. But when you go to the shops, there are no options like this. It's quite hard to find a shoulder. You know, a pork shoulder or something like this. So um, it 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 goes from it goes from really from production right down to consumption. And so I think the yeah I mean it's fascinating to think about um, the alternatives that are coming up, soy-based protein, um, um, insect-based uh, protein, and all these alternatives. And that's why I think it's very science fiction. I mean, think about um, Silent Green, think about Snowpiercer, think about all the ways in which people have imagined what we would rely on if we could no longer produce um, enough to sustain the global population. Um, yet, I think with alternatives, I think what David has done, David and Sonelli have done really well is mainstreaming this idea that we need to move away from 
something that is so resource intensive, such as beef and and pork, such as of all these sort of high up in the food chain type of um, products. But another thing that has been, I think, um, discussed in the background is the industrialization of food, right? So you, people have mentioned about, you know, animal well-being, the, the labor conditions of people working in these places, um, the supply chain. And precisely these, you know, meat itself, it's not necessarily, it, it shouldn't be chock full of hormones and antibiotics, but because they are um, they're produced, they're reared in such um, dense conditions that rearers have to use antibiotics to prevent an outbreak of mm -hmm. swine flu or any other kind of um, conditions. But it's the density, right? It's the scale. And if you look at global food supply, only a handful of companies own poultry, beef production, even soy, right? So we don't see that and it's very hard to get into the, the to to get the data cargill i think is one of the companies um that own um i think four companies own all the poultry production in the world mm. and then if you think about that all the vertical integration and the horizontal integration i mean what we're doing is important i'm not denying that but i'm also gesturing towards the bigger sort of global food system that we are all part of and reliant on and that is something that we need to push uh, for change. So when David said, yeah, they, they try to, you know, shorten the supply chain, they try to work more directly with research and development as well as producers. I think shortening the supply chain is important precisely because of that. I mean, importing meat from, if you don't import chicken from Brazil, um, they're one of the biggest producers in the world. And I know why people, I mean, listeners are, are concerned about that, as am I. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of the four companies. Christina Michelini from from Living Farms. Do you? I mean, you said you have a, like an industrial scale now of, of of insect production. Is that your vision, or are you talking about something that's um, that's localized, that's uh, that's uh, more uh, even, you know, sort of tabletop? Yeah, that is a good question. Is not necessarily the vision. Maybe it's more clear if I explain the mm. three steps that we're going through. So we did trial this, let's call it large scale rather, large scale insect farming technology. We trialed it last year with one of the major retailers in Austria. We would get their food waste and then grow the insects, harvest the insects and their fertilizer. And we managed to put out there in the market the insect proteins as well as the fertilizer, both for animal uh, and human food too. Now we're scaling that up further so that we can demonstrate basically the feasibility of the technology. And as a third step, we're hoping to use this industrial scale as a way to showcase the technology to different customers. Um, it's, a, it's almost a plug and play type of technology. So it takes um, away from the customer the burden of having to know how to grow insects necessarily and it's very low um, maintenance. So that way we can basically bring it back in the hands of the customers. They can um, grow their own insects and feed their own food waste and really create a circular system directly from, uh, from their retail stores or, or even from their factories potentially. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're doing now. And of course, there's like 
future challenges that we are working on. One of the things that we have to do is work harder on scalability. We need to produce enough volume to respond, for example, to the animal feed needs. Um, at this point, we are able to process around a thousand tons of food waste a year. So we're hoping to make it even more efficient. And that's why previously I was talking about new type of insects that we are experimenting with that might be able to consume more food waste and faster, right? Um, and then the other bit that, of course, we need to work on is make sure that cost is viable so that the product of insect farming is basically um, competitive. What is also another thing that we need to work on is the value of the proteins that we put out there. So we can, with research, try to optimize the way we feed insects and the way they um, basically become protein packed. So that, take for example, um, from the point of view of animal feed, you can sell a more concentrated animal feed that is richer in protein. And so that process starts with feeding the insects in our, uh, in our facilities and with the technology that we use to feed the insects. So we're doing quite a lot of um, research and trial and error in that sense. The challenge for us is that there's no guidebook, right, for... for Sorry, but if you're giving them protein-rich food, aren't you defeating the object? You're, you're giving them protein-rich food to produce protein. Well, that's one of the things that we're trying to do. You remember earlier you talked about the eek factor and how consumers might not be keen on consuming insects directly, right? Mm. So mm. one of the things that we're getting out of here is that we're just getting these type of proteins a step closer to the consumer by using it for animal feed. Okay, so uh, chickens, chickens is the typical example, right? They would eat mealworms. Um, if you go to the bird's market, they sell live mealworms because they're used to mm. eat certain type of birds and poultry. The other thing... Um, uh, sorry, I lost my... Okay, th there. thank Anna, you. Thank you. Pr Professor Tam... Um, is this an idea that's come of age? You know, every idea... When I first came to Hong Kong, restaurants served mock pork and mock goose. So this is not new. It was a soy product. Is this now an idea that's come of age? Are people now ready, do you think, to assimilate a change in their approach to eating? I think cultural changes take a long, long time to develop um, as to behavioural changes. Um, I, yeah, first behavioural change and then uh, being adopted into, into, into a cultural practice. Um, as you say, yeah, mock pork, mock goose, mock tasu is nothing new and eating dal and lentils have been part of our diet, our Indian diets uh, for a very long time. So it's, it's not so much about um, what is the next best thing to eat. And rather, it is that we, we need to sort of dial back and eat down the food chain. Um, I think there is, on the one hand, a need to make this, again, a trendy thing. Mm. I think this, this, this idea, and I'm not saying that um, trends are not good. Trends, on the one hand, increase awareness and mainstream these products and ideas um, like nothing else can. You know, so an academic paper won't do the job. we can really do. I think people have a feeling of helplessness in the global warming situation. I find small kids are really receptive to this because they feel they can actively make a choice. Yes, but instead of changing um, 
brands i think it's changing way of life i think these this is what all of these good people out there are doing they're changing a different uh, they're changing uh, offering an alternative approach to uh, uh, understanding where food comes from and where we can source food uh, it could be local it could be from an alternative um, uh, source it could be a different way of life how about going more local you know what can we produce more locally shortening the supply chain using simpler products making simpler meals um, all of these things are part of a way of life that we need to shift, shift towards. So if we just keep consuming, um, buying one thing instead of another, it's just changing. The, 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 David Young, finally, you know, so if, if, how do you crack China? How do you get somebody who's going to go to their local cafe and say, I want, I want omni pork, not pork? Um, how, do you make, how do you get people to, to make that switch? Why would they do that? <laughs> well, we are... That's a giant undertaking mm. that we are working on right now. I don't pretend that I have the answer. It's, it's a work in progress. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, trend, culture, awareness building, those, those are very important. Um, obviously, I mean, uh, sad to say, but animal welfare is not going to be the angle um, for most of the mainland Chinese consumers. So we need to think of it from a lifestyle, from a trend, an aspiration standpoint. And, of course, I mean, mm, indeed, mm. Um, you know, just consumers in Asia in general are very specific and very picky about the food they eat. So uh, how to make it truly customized and localized to the local audience is, is paramount. Okay, so, so to sort of plug into the cultural understanding. So you have lunch and meat in, in, in Hong Kong and you'd, you'd have other pork products or whatever in, in different countries. Uh, well, David Young, thank you very much indeed for joining us, CEO and founder of the, the Green Monday Group. Thank you very much indeed to uh, Professor uh, Daisy Tam, Assistant Professor in the Department of Humanities at the Baptist University. To Sonali Figueres, the founder and editor-in-chief of uh, Green Queen, which is a great website, highly recommended. Go and check that out. And uh, Christina Michelini, who's the CEO of uh, Living Farms. Thank Thank you all very much indeed for, for joining us today. Uh, Anna, thank you very much indeed. And uh, thanks, Michelle, once again for production. Uh, we're going to be back at 8.30 tomorrow. We're going to be talking about those uh, 12 uh, young people detained uh, leaving Hong Kong in the programme. should be uh, interesting. I hope you can join us then. Here's the weather before we go. Mainly cloudy with a couple of rain patches and a maximum temperature of about 26 degrees. Sunny intervals tomorrow. Fine and dry during the weekend and early next week. It's slightly cooler in the morning and at night. 25 degrees now. Humidity is at 70%. The symptoms of COVID-19 can be mild. Don't go to work or school if feeling unwell. Wear a mask and consult a doctor promptly. Ask doctors at accident and emergency departments, general outpatient clinics, private hospitals, or clinics for free testing provided by the Department of Health. Return the specimen to a designated collection point or use the door-to-door -door specimen collection service for a fee. Test promptly for early detection. 931, the news now with Samantha Butler. A travel industry union estimates another 1,000 workers will be asked to take unpaid leave, much like the 300 staff at Sunflower Travel Agency who were notified of the plans yesterday. Tom King-Sam from the Travel Industry Outbound Tour Escort and Tour Guide Union said he expected another two or three big firms to follow suit and with the scarcity of jobs, he said most workers might agree to the terms. 
The senior U.S. medical official dealing with controlling coronavirus, Anthony Fauci, has criticised President Trump's political rallies in the final stages of the election campaign, saying they're bound to spread COVID-19. He said such gatherings of people not wearing masks or social distancing were potentially super-spreading events. And the French President Emmanuel Macron has announced a new national lockdown starting Friday to continue until at least the end of November. Speaking on national television, he said none of the coronavirus measures taken so far had worked in the face of a second wave whose speed had caught all of Europe by surprise. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning and welcome to Thursday. Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. Well, Steve Vine's going to be with us after 10.10, gracing us with his presence and promising to keep Morning Brew flatly down to standard. Of course, whilst looking at the week in local news. Dr Dave the Vet with me after 11.30. Here to answer any of your questions and throw a couple of topics of his own in. I had an email this morning about a very nasty thing called screw worm. Apparently it is as nasty as it sounds. So we'll start with that. Unfortunately, JCVN's is in the air somewhere today. He's travelling. So our man of wine will be back with us next Thursday at the normal time. Anyway, let's get it going. Dan Hicks, Hot Licks, Meet Me on the Corner. It's Radio 3. I can't sleep, I can't eat. I'm a drummer and I can't keep the feet. When I wake up tomorrow, there'll be something wrong with my feet. I do left, I do right. But my eyes are open all night. I won't wake up tomorrow. For God's sake, I'm already awake. You can lay out a spread, my you can't go so I don't want to that I'm already fat My appetite's split to Hong Kong So you see where I am I got no bread in front of your jam And when I wake up tomorrow My tears will be burnt from the dam Won't you meet me on the corner by half past two Can't you hear me calling you Ain't there something you can do To shed your light To make it all right So the dog won't fight And I can sleep all night I'll be forgetting all of my lips Am I down on my luck? Down on my luck If it walks like a duck, it's a duck It's a duck And I see myself walking Over there, someone just dropped a buck You can put me a ball over we're at Give me the house that I choose Where do I sign to make it all mine? Or did I just say some more made-up news? But that's the way it goes well, There's a steady stream of the door If I try like a that door They'll be breaking it down 